Uh, last week, uh, I was not in the pulpit. Wayne Logan was, and uh, he did a great job. Uh, I gave him a really tough text, and uh, I plan on whoever our next guest preacher is getting the next tough text. So um, today we will be looking at Noah, and we'll be looking at Noah the next couple weeks. Uh, so follow with me here from Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. From destroy them with the earth. Make sure an ark of gopher wood. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark three hundred cubits, its breadth fifty cubits, and its height thirty cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it. To a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive, and take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The word of the Lord. Does that sound like a children's story to you? I mean, I, I know it can kind of sound like Dr. Doolittle. It does look like Noah is the zookeeper extraordinaire. But the story that I just read often has the sin and the judgment just airbrushed right out of it. It just turns into something sentimental when it actually is something quite unsettling. It's unsettling for us. It's unsettling for us because as 
it, it offends our modern sensibilities of what God is like. See, in our text, God judges the world and he wipes out mankind. And this makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, one Sunday after church, I had someone approach me who'd been coming for a while. And uh, this woman asked a very sincere question. And she did so in the kindest of ways. But she objected to the God of justice that I had preached on that Sunday. And I understood why. It, 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 it unsettled me, too. And I responded to her objection by asking her a question. I said, why weren't you offended by an idea of a forgiving God? I mean, I spoke about the forgiving God alongside this God of justice. And so, see, as Westerners, our ideas of loving our enemies and turning the other cheek and these ideas of forgiveness, they're very appealing to us. But they really unrattle those who come from more traditional cultures. It, it, it offends their tastes and their deepest instincts about what they think is right. See, for them, a God of judgment makes perfect sense. It's no problem at all. And no matter your society, whether it's Western and modern or non-Western and traditional, it, it attracts certain aspects of Christianity to it, but it's repulsed by others. And so I knew this, and so I asked this friend of mine, after that Sunday, and she had her honest, sincere objection. Now, I, I asked her if she thought that her culture was more superior than non-Western cultures, and she quickly answered no. And then I asked, why should your culture's objections to Christianity trump theirs? See, if Christianity is not the product of any one culture, but it actually is transcultural, that it's transcendent because it's the truth of God, then we should expect it to contradict us at some point. I mean, it's going to highlight the errors that are found in our culture. It's going to highlight the errors found in our individual belief system. Otherwise, God would simply be an idealized vision of ourselves. We'd simply be making God in our own image. So when we look at this text, Genesis chapter 6, and the next two sermons that we'll have on Noah... I want you to lay aside the visions of Noah that may have dominated your childhood. And I want you to take God at his word. You're going to let him take center stage because he's the main character. See, what we see in, in, in the Noah narrative is Noah doesn't even talk. <laughs> he doesn't have a word to say. But he does do things. And we're going to look at that. And so the drama today, it unfolds in three parts. There's the occasion for God's judgment in the first few verses. There's a character of God's judgment that we see throughout. And there's a surprise within God's judgment. So let's do that first one. The occasion for God's judgment, the first five verses. What you'll see there, it, it sounds like the stuff of science fiction, doesn't it? The first four verses. You've got three different groups of people. You have the sons of God. You've got the daughters of men. And then you have this group of people called the Nephilim. Who are each of these sets of people? Well, I, I, I looked in probably nine different commentaries this week. Uh, these aren't Google kinds of things. These are things you pay a good amount of money for, these big, thick books. And uh, I looked at nine of them to try to find out what, what, who these groups of people were. And there are lots of different explanations. But the, thing that, the one that I think makes the most sense is to say that the sons of God are really just demon-possessed males. And that the, 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 that the daughters of men are, are just are women, just human beings, image bearers, women. 
But then they produce a genre of persons called the Nephilim. And they are probably large in stature and that they dominate the earth. But no matter what your interpretation is of these three groups of people, what is plain is the evaluation given in verse 5 and verses 11 and 12. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That phrase, the Lord saw, the Lord saw. If you've been with us, what, what, what is that? What, does that ring a bell for you? It should because it's said over and over again in chapter 1. In chapter 1, after each creation day, the text says, And God saw that it was good. Well, God's evaluation here isn't that it was good. It's very different here. What he sees here is that there are men who are taking women for their own sexual pleasure, that they're doing it in violence, and it's producing a species of mankind that looks nothing like what he had intended in the garden. See, he had intended for men and women to live in unity, to live in partnership, that they would produce children, and that these children would be a part of the whole business of cultivating creation and bringing out all the beauty that was latent in it. But that's not what we see here. What we see is no unity, no partnership. We just see wickedness between men and women. So he sees this wickedness and it's stacked a mile high. He sees that the wickedness has corroded their souls to the extent that their souls are 100% rotten. And evil is their only outcome. Now I know it's easy to look at our world and come to a similar conclusion, isn't it? I mean, our world does seem pretty dark in many ways. I mean, you've got this widening gap between the rich and the poor. I mean, you've got oppressive racism that lurks around every corner. You've got the existence of human trafficking and abortion and the billion-dollar sex industry, and it'll make your skin crawl. But is our world or our American culture really that much darker than any other point that we find in human history? Is it really any darker than Genesis chapter 6, verse 5? Probably not. See, corruption has existed at every level of society for all time since the garden. So it's a fair question to ask, what is God supposed to do about it? I mean, what would you do if you were God? I mean, doesn't judgment sound really strange to you? But does it sound strange when you have this whole standpoint of creation come into view? I mean, think about it. God created the heavens and the earth out of sheer pleasure and joy. I mean, the delight that he experienced within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it existed from all eternity, and then it spilled out into creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's a world of spectacular splendor. It's a world that he gathers up and he savors on the seventh day. He set forth this perfect plan for its flourishing where he's put his beloved image bearers in charge. So I would suggest to you it's because God loves his creation so much that he's filled with anger and with wrath. Because he's seen all that he's made ruined before his very eyes. It's not hard to imagine. I mean, think about it. If you love a person and you see someone harming that person, even if that person is himself or herself, don't you get angry? 
I mean, if I walked in the parking lot with Jenna and the kids today and someone attacked Jenna and or the kids, I would react with force. And I should. Because I love them and I don't want to see them harmed. Would it really be the loving thing to let the attacker have their way with my family? I'd say that for any of you. And so when you zoom out and you allow Genesis 1 and 2 and this perfect picture of creation come into view, then chapter 6 makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? I mean, what will make it make even more sense to us as with our sensibilities is the character that we see of God's judgment. I mean, the first thing we see is that God's judgment is perfectly just. His judgment, it's not like the wrath that we're accustomed to seeing. If you've seen displays of anger or wrath, you've probably seen it not fit the situation, haven't you? If you've seen anger or wrath, it usually seems arbitrary or disproportionate or it's exaggerated. I mean, think about all the murders you've, you've heard of that happened because of road rage. Or we're used to seeing someone in an authority that overlooks a situation that requires a firm response, but this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible that we find, he rules with perfect justice. And these people that he sees here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, are wicked. And they deserve the punishment that has been handed to them. God's not being temperamental here. This is not an accident. God is acting deliberately to destroy that which had turned evil. So the character of God's judgment is perfectly just. We also see that his judgment is very patient. Look at uh, verse 2. It says that uh, Noah took a, that Noah had 120 years to build this ark. It's a long time. And during those 120 years, as he's building this ark, he's part carpenter and part preacher. That's what we see in 2 Peter 2.5. Noah was preaching while he's building this ark. I mean, he's got to tell them why he's doing it. Which means that he's got to confront them with their wickedness. And the reason he's going to confront them with their wickedness is not so that he can be self-righteous. The reason he's confronting them with their wickedness is so that they might repent. So it's a long time that Noah's preaching this same sermon all while crafting this boat. See, God's patient with us. 120 years. He's long-suffering. He's extending a much longer window of repentance than I ever would. God's judgment is patient. The other thing we see is that alongside of God's judgment, you will always see God's sadness. Did you catch that in verse 6 and 7? Verse 6 and 7, we see that, tells us that the sin among mankind grieved God's heart. In fact, before he ever makes a plan to execute judgment for sin, he feels pain in his heart. He's not cold. He's not disinterested observer. He's not just angry. His heart's filled with pain. This makes sense even for the worst of parents. I mean, parents at their best, they don't like punishing their children. I mean, dishing out discipline is as painful for the parent who's dishing it out as it is for the child who's experiencing the discipline. Same thing here. Sadness and anger are intermixed here with God. So when you zoom out and you see these details of God's judgment, it makes more sense. 
But the easy thing to miss here is probably the most obvious, and it's that not everyone experienced judgment. I mean, you did have Noah. You have Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, and they're all saved, and their salvation would happen, it'd be procured if they followed the plan that God gave them to build a boat and put every kind of animal in it, and then they would survive the worldwide flood, and the flood would wipe out the rest of creation. But why would God choose Noah? Why didn't he choose someone else? Well, it seems like he chose Noah because of his moral goodness. I mean, verse 9, you see how he's described. He has this glowing assessment of being righteous and blameless and walking with God, right? And and it's especially glowing when you put it in contrast to verse 5. So it's easy to make the conclusion that this passage is teaching us that there's punishment for the wicked and salvation for the righteous. And so the goal of this passage is to warn against violence and motivate towards obedience. The goal of this passage is essentially saying, don't be wicked, but be good like Noah. But doesn't that sound a little superficial? Doesn't that sound a little moralistic? I hope so. I mean, most of us, we do think this is what church is all about. It's about be good, don't be bad. Come to church because it's going to help you be good and not be bad. But if you read the passage closely, you'll be surprised at what happens within God's judgment. I mean, look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Favor. Favor. The word favor can also be translated grace. And grace biblically just means unmerited favor. It means that God chose Noah, he chose to shower his favor upon him to give him his loving attention because of no merit of Noah's. I know it's tempting to think that Noah got attention because of how he's described in verse 9 as righteous, blameless, and walking with God. But verse 8 always comes before verse 9. Grace always precedes transformation. You see this grace dynamic in verse 18. Verse 18, God makes a covenant with Noah. I know covenant's not a word that I use that much, and probably not a word you use that much, but in the Bible, it always refers to the saving relationship that God has with his people. The relationship that God has with his people, God always initiates. Men and women never ask for a covenant in the Bible, never. God is the one who always strikes up this saving relationship. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, people run away from God. But God in his rich mercy, he runs to them to make salvation possible. See, Noah didn't make this covenant happen. All Noah did was believe. He could have disagreed with God's plan. He could have gotten worn down by all the harassment of those 120 years. He could have started the ark, made it 22 years in. Partially finished, but he didn't. He believed God's word. He received God's grace. So do you believe in God's grace for you? You remember verse 5? I mean, we're we're not totally unlike verse 5. That's why Romans chapter 3 in the New Testament gives us a similar evaluation of verse 5. Romans chapter 3 says, Our souls and our words and our deeds are comprehensively sinful. Romans chapter 3 is essentially saying that we're in danger of our own flood. It's not a flood of water, but it's a flood of our own sin. But brother and sister, grace is possible 
Just like Noah is said to have found favor with God, you can put your name in there. So you're alive today because God's patient with you. God's giving you a chance to repent. God wants to rescue you not in a boat, but through his son. You don't have to drown in your sin because Jesus has already drowned on your behalf. He came to endure the judgment that you deserve. He has run after you when you've run from him. He wants to initiate a covenant with you. He's come to make you favored. And when you see God's grace in that way, you'll want to be blameless. You'll want to be righteous. You'll want to walk with God. And your belief will be so much more than just a verbal confession. It'll take action. I mean, look at Noah's life. Even though Noah doesn't say a word in here, his actions speak quite loudly to prove his belief in God's word to him. I mean, think about what these 120 years must have been like for the brother. I mean, he goes out and he has to cut down these trees. He's got to move the wood to the building site. He's got to fit the planks. It's going to cost him a fortune. I mean, think about the animals. He has somehow had to lure all these animals into a boat. He's got to plan for all their very diets and include that food in the boat. He's got to spend 120 years enduring this ridicule. I mean, remember what these people were like. These weren't just like your neighbor kind of people. These were demon-possessed people. These were Nephilim. They're large in stature. But Noah kept his hand at the plow. I'm sure they ridiculed him. I'm sure they terrorized him. I'm sure he had moments where he feared for his life. I'm sure he had moments where he feared for his family's life. But he persisted at great risk himself. Think about how lonely he had to be. I mean, he didn't have a lot to go on. All he had was the bare word of God that came to him in one day, and that one day had to sustain him for 120 years. He didn't have a preacher preaching to him. He didn't have a community around him to give him assurance on his doubting days. But in spite of all this adversity, verse 22 is still true for Noah, that he did all that was commanded of him. See, brother and sister, when God comes to you in grace, when he puts his favor on you, when he makes a covenant with you, he always asks you to do something impossible. Now, for Noah, it was build the ark. For you, it's probably not going to be building a boat. That's not going to be your impossible task. I don't know what it's going to be. I mean, maybe the impossible thing is for you to get sober. Maybe the impossible thing is that you're going to raise children very differently than the way you were raised. You're going to parent by grace and not the law. You're not going to make your kids the center of your identity. You're going to stay attuned to your kids and not neglect them. You're going to parent differently. That seems impossible. Maybe you'll do marriage differently. Instead of holding grudges for years and years on end, I'm still, uh, instead of doing this quid pro quo, I'll do this for you, you do this for me. But you'll do marriage based on grace. Maybe you'll do your job very differently and it seems impossible. You're not going to make your career your whole life. Your life isn't going to be about getting that house and taking those vacations and having that nest egg for retirement in your kid's college. Instead, you're going to give your money away. 
You're not going to work 100 hours a week. You're not going to make your job simply about making money. Maybe the thing that's impossible is that you're going to move to an impoverished neighborhood in our city. That you're going to give your life away to that neighborhood and teach an under-resourced school. I don't know. I have no idea what your impossible is. But grace not only saves, it also empowers. So let me ask you this morning, is grace operational in your life? Is it enabling a life of obedience? See, brothers and sisters, we are saved by grace alone. But the grace that saves never remains alone. It's always joined by good works. And so may God produce these in us as we follow him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is a, a hard word. And Lord, I pray. Lord, that we would hear it. Lord, that we would see you as you are. Lord, that you are a God who does not just sweep wickedness under the rug, but Lord, you are also a God who extends grace to sinners. Lord, that you really can find favor in us, despite our frailties. Oh, Lord, may we receive that even now. In Christ's name.